I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saded 13, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the program, Mark Ames, journalist and co-host with Gary Brecher, a.k.a. John Dolan, of the popular podcast Radio Warnerd joins the show to discuss his experience being spied on by the ADL and the article he wrote about the now largely forgotten ADL spy ring scandal. That article, in case you're interested in reading it, was written in 2014 and was entitled The Kings of Garbage or The ADL spied on me, and all I got was this lousy index card. It's going to be a fascinating conversation that goes into some deep, dark territory concerning the Anti-Defamation League and the South African apartheid regime. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views with special guest Mark Ames of Radio Warnerd. Welcome to Parallax News, a guest that I'm really, really excited to be speaking with uh, because I remember during my college days, I would read through uh, The Exiled, and he was the sort of head honcho there. And, you know, that got me through some rough times in my life reading that. Welcome to Parallax Views, Mark Ames of uh, Radio War Nerd with uh, John Dolan, also known as uh, Gary Brecher. Uh, how are you doing, Mark? Good. Uh, thanks for having me on. So, Mark, the reason I wanted to have you on... Actually, I'm a little groggy, as I told you, but I'm going to do my <laughs> best here. <laughs> I also should have mentioned in that intro 
you and and Yasha Levine uh, deserve a lot of credit that I think sometimes you guys haven't gotten when it comes to exposing the uh, Koch brothers and their sort of dark money network, because I see all the credit given to Jane Meyer and that book, uh, Dark Money. But you guys really blew the lid off that initially. So thank you for that. Well, uh, uh, props to um, Jane for um, citing citing us, citing our work. So at least she didn't hide it. I mean, I've seen others like Lee Fung try to claim other credit for the first blowing it open. Yeah, we did first break that story. We didn't realize it was a big deal when we broke it. Actually, we were having fun with it. And it was only when the pushback, it was crazy pushback when we wrote about how the very, very first um, Tea Party protest in like February of 2008 was back, uh, 2009, was backed by these weird oil oligarchs. To us, it just looked like this kind of like a Russian oligarch astroturf thing. So it, it was almost a funny story to us. And then the pushback was freaking hysterical. It was the first time I realized how deeply corrupted the whole american like media landscape was um didn't you guys write something about it didn't you guys write something about i'll move on from this but didn't you guys write something about it in like playboy and then the Koch brothers like pushed for it to not be published uh well the Koch brothers didn't do that um but uh one of the organized yeah it's a long story but yeah initially i published it i'd been hired by playboy at that time too and they were like you know write stuff that's you know edgy and is going to create controversy. And I did. And I got this call like, this is way too much. Um, we're uh, They're coming down hard on us. CNBC, Rick, Rick uh, Sant- Santelli's people are are freaking out. And it turned out that the editor of Playboy at the time, his um, his first cousin was one of the one of the lead DC organizers of the Tea Party, because initially it was just like this think tank world thing of think tank libertarians it, it wound up blowing up into a much bigger thing that's another story but initially that's what it was and so yeah so they they took it down but didn't retract it and and like megan mccardle no you know at the atlantic wrote that how wrong it was because she knew the Koch brothers and they were honorable people <laughs> and all this like there was just such a weird attack and then santelli canceled his appearance in response to our article, he canceled his appearance on uh, John Stewart, and it just like the whole thing just got was crazy, and I, I didn't realize at the time how messed up uh, the American media was and how cowardly and and corrupt it was, and that was my first yeah experience. So the thing I wanted to talk about with you on this episode was you wrote, you know, a, a number of years ago now. I think you first wrote it in. Uh, 2014, uh, the Kings of Garbage or the ADL spied on me and all I got was this lousy index card. And I have that pulled up right now, but uh, the ADL has been in the news lately. And I find it really interesting that people are saying, I'm so surprised that the ADL would embrace uh, a figure like Elon Musk uh, <laughs> or they, they would tweet about how great Kissinger was. And I'm like, I'm not really surprised by it because <laughs> I know about the Roy Bullock scandal, but for people that don't know, I think they should read uh, The Kings of Garbage. Uh, but you start that piece by talking about how you uh, were spied on by the ADL and you weren't even like a, a left wing guy at the time when this was happening. So let's get into that story. Yeah, it was um, it was uh, it was a, a shocker for me. Um, I guess, you know, my part of it was um, and this is 19. 
1993, I believe it was when I got this. I was home. I was just about ready to move to Russia. I was home helping my mother. My my stepfather was dying of um, of uh, brain cancer at the time. And I got this notification in the mail at my father's house. My parents were divorced. And um, I was living there. And uh, he said, oh, you got something from the San Francisco City Council. And I opened it up and there was just this index card and, and, and a letter from the San Francisco City Council about their... Um, as part of their settlement with uh, the Anti-Defamation League, they were informing people who had been illegally spied on by this uh, Anti-Defamation League-led ring, spy ring. They were all going to be notified and have their index cards returned to them. So there were index cards kept on all these people, thousands of people, uh, people from the ACLU, from ACT UP, from NAACP, Greenpeace. Greenpeace, yeah. yeah. And all kinds of liberal, even pro-Israel liberal Democrats. Nancy Pelosi, Alan Cranston, who was the big senator, you know, very big Israel supporter. But And then little me. <laughs> I got a card and I was on the pinko list, which was really, it was it was somewhere between offensive and embarrassing. And, and it just increased my own self-loathing because... I I had been uh, you know a right winger before and a and a big Zionist. Now by 1993 I wasn't anymore, but I wouldn't say I was a leftist or an anti-Israel activist by any stretch. I just I was a completely deeply disillusioned ex-reactionary and ex-Zionist, I guess you could say. And and to get this and be having been labeled a pinko was kind of a shock. And I had my address when I had lived in uh, San Francisco previously. Uh, my home address, my car make, was shitty Subaru I had, um, which always broke down. And the store that I worked at, which was this kind of left-wing used bookstore in the Mission District. You know, it just, it, it, it turned out that basically the ADL had been caught using its own sort of mole, spy mole, um, and, uh, and, a, and a former member of the... Uh, San Francisco Police Department from their intelligence uh, unit, uh, the intelligence unit, which had been disbanded, a guy named Tom Gerard with a very, very dark past in the Phoenix program and the dirty wars in the 80s, used them and then worked also with South Africa's apartheid police. Yeah, anyway, so and then th those guys also contracted out with South Africa's Gestapo. This is back in the apartheid days, their, their foreign intelligence service to spy on Americans because they had uh, Israel and ADL, you know, one of, apparently it's it's really an Israel advocacy and protection group. Um, their, their interests were aligned. And so the reason I was spied on was because at Ber when I was at Berkeley, I assume this is why, I, I participated in these big anti-apartheid protests. They were huge there. They were divest divestment. You know, it was like BDS. This, I think, is one of the inspirations for BDS was this. And I just remember, like, in in a overnight occupation that we did. And this is back when I was a Republican, but I was still for this because it just seemed obvious to me and the right thing. That's wild, by the way. You were probably, like, one of the uh, very, very few people at Berkeley who was a Republican. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I was a Republican, but I would I, I, I never wanted to hang out with them. So, you know, it's, 
that makes sense at all. I, I just, I was just more like somebody who was very affected by the seventies and it made me a reactionary until I got over it. Um, and, uh, but it's still the seventies made their marks on me in all kinds of ways. But anyway, so I remember police filming us all who were like camped out and occupying Sproul Plaza and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I think that, well, that's why I got an index card. That's why I was spied on because I was an anti, I was, you know, listed as an anti-apartheid activist. And because I worked at this left-wing bookstore um, where, which had a kind of paranoid old sort of kind of like cuss between hippie and beatnik owner. Um, he's a nice guy. I, I think he was paranoid because he was always kind of paranoid about like, you know, the man and COINTELPRO and it turned out he was right. He was being spied on. So that's kind of the background to it. The ADL, basically the ADL contracted with um, South Africa's foreign spy agency to spy on Americans, including congressmen. And spy on means collecting information, but it also means all kinds of other things. You know, it means um, finding ways to disrupt, to, um, you know, to provoke provocateurs. There's a lot that I think, you know, was deliberately covered up because it was because the ADL also is it's just so powerful and deeply intertwined with U.S. law enforcement agencies and so on. So it, this only went so far how much we learned about what they did for South Africa and Israel. I was going to say real quick for people that don't realize this. I mean, this story was making mainstream news in various yeah. places at the time in, in the early 90s. So. Yeah. I have a bunch of like LA Times articles yes. pulled up about it. You yeah. know, they were covering it. I think uh, San Francisco Chronicles. There was a lot of people yeah. covering this story. Um, and at the center of it is this guy, Roy Bullock. And I didn't realize until I read your piece that I, I guess he has sort of a McCarthyite past. Who was Roy Bullock? Yeah, so Roy Bullock was this um, this nasty dweeb from, um, from uh, Indianapolis who – at a very young age, uh, in the early mid fifties, dreamed of becoming a snitch. Um, so you're already talking about a pretty weird person. I don't know who dreams of becoming a snitch, unless it's somebody who's really angry at the world, but wants to, I don't know, rather than blowing up that world, I don't know, but wants to join with, with power forces and blow up other people that he, I, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a strange mindset. I have to say, I don't get snitches, but I do think snitches are just the lowest form. And, um, but they're useful. They're always useful. And, they, and they're always, you know, they always cause so much damage, but law enforcement agencies that never stops them anyway. So he, uh, he gets a start as a volunteer basically for uh, local police then he winds up moving up pretty quickly, showing that he's very useful. Um, he's sent out in the late 50s to one of those World Student Association when students from sort of the communist bloc, the, the sort of uh, in-between world and the West would all meet up and they'd have like it was a kind of a propaganda thing among college students. But it was it was a big deal. I mean, the CAA ran the National Student Association. That was when that came out, that was like one of the first big revelations about CIA, you know, um, malevolence in the in the kind of left wing press in America. That was Ramparts that did that in the 60s. They exposed it. 
And also, by the way, Gloria Steinem was one of the CIA spies on those student uh, meetings. Um, so, yeah, that's he he did that. And then in 1960, he was hired by uh, the ADL and sent out to Orange County to spy on because Orange County in, in California um, at that time, uh, up through probably just, you know, 20 years ago, 10, 20 years ago, was like really the most kind of when you when you cross overlap um kind of um right wing activism um with kind of money and power like orange county was i don't know the beating heart of cer certainly john bircherism like it, bircherism was very powerful there and it's a wealthy county and um so he went out there back when the adl or the benai brith especially were still focused on the right on uh investigating the right on exposing the right um and you know the john birch society which fred Koch's charles Koch's dad helped start up by the way had although although they tried to sort of police the um uh, uh, the anti-semitism um uh, in in the organization by by their like top people and once in a while somebody would get kicked out like they 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 used a lot of coded language and they just like they had one raving fascist anti-Semite after another in that organization. And then in the 70s, Bullock gets basically a call and told, we need you to move to San Francisco. And this is the late 70s. Um, so he gets set up. They set him up in the Castro district as an art dealer, an antique art dealer, and tell him basically to start infiltrating well, mostly, I mean, we've talked about ACLU, we've talked about Democratic congressmen, but really the main target was, along with left-wing groups, were Arab American activists. So that's what he did from seven, from the late 70s till his spy ring was broken up in 1992 or three. And uh, I mean, this guy, he was really good at what he did. He was very good at, you know, when you... When you study like uh, infiltrators and snitches, as a general rule, and you don't want to you know spread too much uh, paranoia, but as a general rule, they wind up being people who are really helpful. They come in there and they go above and beyond offering help. You don't know much about their past, but you know they're really super helpful. I just I I say this only because I've read about other high level snitches going back to the sixties and seventies, and they all have that's one of their traits, and for obvious reasons. You know, you yeah, go, he was like very active yes. in these. Uh, I don't know if it was the ADC that he was involved yes. in. The okay, yeah, the Arab. It's the Arab American anti anti discrimination committee, the ADC, which was modeled on the ADL. They wanted to be an ADL for for Arabs in America. It was founded by James. Uh, he was a, a senator from um, South Dakota, James Aburesk, uh, I believe is how you pronounce his name. He was. Um, he, he was a pretty cool senator. He was a one-term senator. He was the first Arab American, Christian, uh, Greek Orthodox, um, kind of had a, a populist politics. I mean, he was actually trying to push through a new law when in the Senate with Mark Hatfield, uh, who I think I think was a Republican from Oregon, to uh, to legalize like plebiscites, basically, so referend national referendums um, on some laws. Uh, you know, pretty anti-militarist. Um, so uh, he, oh, condemned, I guess, and helped get close the Office for Public Safety. I don't know if you heard of that. That was um, this wing of the of USAID 
from like the late fifties until, I don't know, I guess until it was uh, shut down, I think in the, in the, in the mid seventies around the time of the, the, um, the church committee hearings, because what they did was they, they, you know, it's called the office of public safety, but what it did was train police in like particularly Latin American juntas and other juntas, train them in torture techniques. And, um, and he got that shut down. So, um, yeah, so a lot of the spying at first was really centered on the uh, Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, Roy Bullock, whose code name was Cal, uh, when he was paid by uh, the ADL's lawyer. Um, he infiltrated them. He would do things like, because he would also infiltrate sort of skinhead neo-Nazi groups. And then he would take literature from there and then go to ADC meetings and leave the Nazi literature there and try and see if he could get somebody to get themselves in trouble with it. So, I don't know, somebody pick it up and walk somewhere with it and then get caught out by somebody else. Nobody took the bait. They were, you know, we have to remember that, I mean, we're seeing anyway, really crazy hysterical levels of canceling and, you know, like firings of people who are at all sympathetic to Palestinians now. But back then it was, it was a lot worse because it was, it was Arab Americans by polite society and liberal society were, were, were considered like you could be racist against them. You could be bigoted against them. You could, you could consider them not fully civilized uh, and, and dangerous and not have sympathy with them as not empathize with them as people. That was pretty standard for liberal Americans. Uh, I, I was going to add to that. I mean, yeah. it was a time really where even saying, I know people that back then were for a two state solution with Israel, Palestine, but back then they were called anti-Semites for that, even, <laughs> you know, people like Ian Lustig. So I mean, it's, yeah. You know, it's a very crazy true, time. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's true because they would say, hey, Israel's willing to do it, but they need a partner. So if you said they want a two-state solution, well, they would say, but then you're basically allowing the PLO, which wants to see Israel destroy all the stuff we say about Hamas now, uh, wants to see them destroyed. So basically you want them uh, uh, pushed out into the sea. The PLO has said we want them pushed out in the sea. All the same stuff we say about Hamas now they said about the PLO back then. So yeah, if you were for a two-state, even though that was the law, you know, that was UN law that uh, I, th I think America used to at least abide by or sort of officially go by, yeah, you were considered anti-Semitic. But, but any sort of displays of sympathy with the Palestinian plight at all were considered anti-Semitism and crypto-Jew-hating, if not outright Jew-hating. And, you know, just in popular culture, Arabs were always depicted as mad, you know, uh, barbaric um, murderers who you couldn't, and irrational murderers. I mean, they were they were usually the bad guys. They They got kind of replaced after a while by Russians, but usually... The, the the bad guys in movies and TV shows, and it was okay. It was one of those prejudices that you can you could openly have at that time. So yeah, he. I mean, one of the craziest stories was that he was picked. Roy Bullock was picked by this Arab group to represent them in a meeting with Nancy Pelosi in her office in Washington, because they thought he was so helpful and so articulate. 
So he he led the Arab American. So an ADL spy working for South African police headed an, an Arab delegation covertly to inside, you know, Nancy Pelosi's office. And then there were also worries about like there was other weird, creepier stuff. The assassination. We, we got to get into okay. Alex O'Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alex O'Day, who was he was the um, regional executive director for people yes. that, that don't know of the ADC's Western region. Yes. Christian Palestinian. Yeah, he was he was uh, and he was one of the the, the basically the favorites of um, of uh, Senator Aburis. Um, he was murdered when a bomb was planted in his office in Santa Ana, California, in Orange County, right where where Roy Bullock was, and Bullock had so ingratiated himself into Alex O'Day's circle that O'Day actually gave him keys to his office. And people were shocked eight years later when this story broke and they realized that Bullock all along had been working for the ADL and the South Africans because they, I mean, they openly wondered, you know, here's, here's a, a quote from uh, Albert uh, Mokuber, who is the president of the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee uh, in 1993. And he says here, Alex O'Day was murdered in Santa Ana, California. Roy Bullock claimed he was very close with Alec. Well, he was, and that he even had access to the office. Uh, and then we're going to talk about Tom Gerard. Tom Gerard was a bomb expert. He was an expert. This is the San Francisco police spy, uh, was an expert in explosions. And Alex was killed by a bomb. And he says, I'll be a, a very honest with you. We raised these concerns with the FBI. Now, I think what came out was that um, it's believed that uh, the JDL had him killed. And, Jewish defense league, the Kahanist. Yeah. Yes. And um, and in fact, the you know, the suspect has been fingered and lives, I think, in the West Bank in a settlement in the West Bank. Um, and he's being protected by Israel. But don't forget the the like the ADL, um, the JDL, the Jewish Defense League, the Kahanites were were i mean hand in glove with the fbi um now they would go off the rails sometimes i mean th th those relationships between informants and fbi and groups like that you know they're they're not as simple as the fbi runs them they have to you know very overlapping interests which is nefarious and malevolent interests and they work with each other but um you know it's the whole thing it's just it's very dark and very creepy and uh I think it's fair to I think it's fair to assume that Bullock would um, could have just as easily helped out, you know, a JDL bombing given his access, as he could have helped his partner Tom Gerard do it. Personally, I, I doubt probably Gerard did. Although Gerard may have even you know had a hand too. I'm not sure. I think Gerard wasn't quite working for them yet. But I think it's very you know the 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 circles that. Roy Bullock worked in. I'm sure he had overlapping um, interest with JDL people. So, yeah. I think the story, though, that you said, I think was the most disturbing was the story involving uh, this guy. Tom Gerard. Uh, David Gervitz. Oh, David right? Gervitz. Yeah. I mean, we, we can get into Gerard. So, like, who? I mean, because I want people to be able to identify who these people are. So you have the art dealer guy, and yeah. McCarthyite lover. Um, Roy Bullock. And then who, so Tom Gerard is the guy in the police, right? That yeah, exactly. So uh, yeah, that started apparently um, Gerard was introduced to Bullock in the ADL San Francisco office by at that time, regional executive director, Richard Hershot. 
who after the scandal broke then became uh i don't know the director of a holocaust museum or something uh in in illinois i mean it's all just everything's just so perverse you know anyway gerard uh was in the uh sfpd's intelligence unit but his he goes back to the to the phoenix program which was a, a mass assassination program talking about assassinations in vietnam when tens of thousands of um uh people who are considered well it was a terror assassination campaign by the cia terror assassination and torture program by the way to murder and terrorize um areas of south vietnam where um the viet cong had support to terrorize them out of politics was I, I think basically the idea and they murdered tens of thousands of local leaders not just people who would be suspected of being sympathizers but anybody who was a potential you know teachers anybody who was a potential leader in various villages so that people other people would think i never want to be i never want to give any comfort or any sympathy to um the viet cong at all it was it was a very brutal program and this guy was part of it then he goes and joins the the um sfpd and then in 1982, Tom Gerard um, gets seconded out or gets a, a, a leave of absence from the SFPD to join the CIA as uh, as an agent for them for you know Reagan and Casey's dirty wars in Central America. And he spends a few years there, and then he comes back in 85 or 86 and starts working for the ATL. <laughs> And I, just to give an, a, an idea of, of the sort of shit that he was involved in there, um, I, I want to read some of this off. I think I read some of this in uh, when I was on, on Chapo, but it, it's really dark stuff that he was involved in. So, uh, by the way, yeah, you're right. There are a lot of articles on this ADL scandal. And then it got sort of buried after 93, 94. No one wanted to talk about it anymore. But we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. I, I want to get into that in a bit. But but yeah, but a lot of these a lot of what I'm going to report here is in the L.A. Times. And I think the reason I was surprised because the L.A. Times is, you know, very pro-Israel, especially then. But they were pissed. And this is what the ADL did is they pissed off the wrong people, including the FBI and the L.A. Times, because they spied on the L.A. Times. And I think that's a reason why the L.A. Times really did their job, you know, unusually in this story and had a lot of really good investigative articles about it, pissed off people at the top of of the company. Anyway, when this story breaks, when it turns out when the FBI and the SFPD or uh, San Francisco prosecutors start raiding um, ADL offices and start blowing, blowing open this spy ring, illegal spy ring. Gerard was brought in for questioning and he, you know, blamed the ADL, blamed Roy Bullock, said, you know, he didn't know what he was doing or whatever. And they said, OK, well, you know, we're going to want you to stick around for more questioning. And instead of sticking around, Tom Gerard, again, the, the CIA Phoenix program, SFPD's police spy, he fled the country. He left to uh, the Philippines, which uh, didn't have an extradition treaty with the U.S., and in his uh, in his police locker, he left a briefcase that was meant to be discovered after he left. That was basically a blackmail briefcase to show what kind of secrets, dark secrets, American dark secrets he would reveal if they didn't cut a deal with him. Uh, and I'm just, uh, you know, again, what was in there was a black executioner's hood with green drawstrings, 
So he was involved in interrogations, CIA-led interrogations in uh, the Central American Dirty Wars. Photographs of bound and blindfolded prisoners uh, in Central America who were being interrogated by CIA officers. Uh, other photos of CIA officers posing with war criminals, with leaders of Central American death squads, like given thumbs up. Uh, a whole bunch of passports under false name. And one of his false names was Tom Clouseau. He loved that one, too. He loved bragging about how right, right. that one Pink up. Panther. Yep, yep, yeah. yep. Um, and he even had an ID for the uh, for the Salvadoran National Guard. That's what it was. The National Guard that was trained up and that carried out most of the massacres. Very, very similar to Phoenix. You know, you just go in and you butcher people. And the, the idea is that counterinsurgency idea is you terrorize the politics out of them. And he had an ID for them. And uh, and then, you know, and he gave an interview then to the L.A. Times. Then he wanted them to know and he wanted to talk about it. And um, among the other things he had was something called, then he was threatening to leak it, something called the International Activities Division Special Activities Group. It was um, back then when the CIA's paramilitary was much smaller and much more of a, of a secret. He threatened basically to release a binder that would reveal the names and whereabouts and activities of everyone in that group. Surprised he was never whacked. Anyway, and he, he tells the LA Times reporter, that's the who's who of the CIA. And it, there's a quote here, ooh, that's going to make people nervous. Ooh. So you can tell he's a, he's a psychopath. Just, you know, who else would, would do this kind of shit? So th this dude is basically, you know, saying, he, he's sort of saying, hey, I'll, I'll blow the whistle on some of this stuff with uh, illegal CIA support of the Central American death squads. So he he's basically trying to like get the, he wants the CIA to muscle the FBI into dropping the investigation. That's his sort of game plan while this is all going on. Yeah, he wants this to to go out of, yeah, sort of FBI level and move up to another level. And it works. I, I mean, just one of the things he was almost for sure uh, involved in. Uh, there was another secret file here named Biodata of Nominees to be Trained in Human Resources Exploitation Course. And it lists 13 names. Another one was called Interrogation Training Farm Prison 1984. And he said that was a CIA death squad training camp outside Williamsburg, Virginia. And, you know, some of this a few years later in the, in the later 90s, there were a series of articles in the Baltimore Sun about CIA and uh, CIA interrogation instruction manual and about how um, this was used uh, in, in Honduras and other places. And then, you know, stories came out about General Rios Montt, our man in, in Guatemala, and the actual genocide he carried out, actually with help from Israel. You know, so this all comes full circle. Anyway, yeah, so um, getting on to, to David Gurvitz. <laughs> Gurvitz was this guy who it was at the L.A. office of the Anti-Defamation League. And uh, he was not getting paid very well as a fact finder. No, it's kind of surprising, isn't it? Yeah, he wasn't getting paid very well. He was like a dropout from uh, UCLA Law School, I think, and was kind of, uh, you know, bitter about that. And he wound up getting recruited by Bullock and Gerard from the San Francisco office. In fact, you know, so Gerard, well, B Roy Bullock, more than anyone, ran a whole series in police departments all around the country of ADL double agents within police intelligence units at the local level in major cities. And then they worked with their ADL people in these different offices. 
So yeah, David Gervitz um, uh, joined the ADL's uh, uh, Los Angeles office in 1989 as a fact checker. And in, I believe it was, and in 1992, maybe it was 1992 or 93, what happens is he starts, yeah, it was 92. Okay. So um, in, in 92 or so, he's getting angry about how low he's paid. He's getting paid like in the low 20s, 20,000. And he wants to get a better job and make more money because he figures like, I'm working with spy rings. I'm like a mover and shaker. I'm ruining people's lives. And here I'm getting paid squat. You know, I want to I want to have a badass car and you know do this stuff. So he can't get more money from the ADL for whatever reason. But uh, his sort of counterpart at another Jewish investigative group, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, that guy makes something like 50% more. It makes like in the, in the thirties, 30,000 a year, which, you know, is good this money. This is Rick then. Eaton. Yeah. Yeah. Rick Eaton. Right. So Gervitz conspires with Roy Bullock and Tom Gerard to set up Rick Eaton to get something bad really happening to him. And what happens is this, they find out that Eaton is going to be infiltrating uh, like a skinhead meeting way out in the woods somewhere. Real quick to add some like flavor to this. I'm familiar with the exact group that he was supposed to oh. be infiltrating white Aryan resistance oh, led yeah, by course. Tom Metzger. And right. for people that don't know, Metzger was the inspiration for the Stacey Keach character in American history X. white Aryan resistance is one of the most like yeah. vile of these like white supremacist organizations. And really they, they support it. I mean, their leader, Tom Metzger supported the whole lone wolf terror model for neo-Nazis. So, I mean, these people were not to be uh, taken lightly. They were very dangerous. Yep. So uh, what they were going to do was basically use their own people because the ADL, like Bullock's office up up north, they also had their ADL people infiltrating in the same white Aaron resistance group. So they were going to have their people out at a retreat, out eaten as a Jew uh, and working as an infiltrator and let what happened, what may happen, happen to him. And the idea which, would which be, is another way of saying, yeah. you know, let him get killed. Yeah, which is another way also of saying there's a job opening for David Gurevitz to get paid more at the Simon Wiesenthal Center. But before this happens, so let me back up a little bit again. Before this happens, in 92, Abe Foxman, who was the famous head of the ADL for a long time, I don't know if, you, if that name rings a bell with you, Abe Foxman and, uh, and uh, another ADL uh, employee out in Washington, D.C., they were putting together an article on the Nation of Islam, uh, tying the Nation of Islam to Gaddafi, who was still the big bogeyman for a long time, the ultimate bogeyman, like a Saddam Hussein. And they were they so they sent out feelers to different ADL offices for research material. And Gervitz wanted to also kind of like boost his name as like, oh, the you know, the boss of bosses in the ADL wants some good uh uh, you know, research on a nation of Islam. So he asks Tom Gerard and Roy uh, Bullock to help him out. So they go and they st steal because they have access to FBI files. The FBI is kind of opened up like they have direct access to the FBI. So they go in and steal files on um, the nation of Islam from the FBI offices in San Francisco. 
give it to Gurvitz. Gurvitz says, hey, look at this great research I found, sends it to Abe Foxman. Foxman publishes this article in the Washington Times, the Mooney Times, headlined Fruit of Islam on U.S. tab. And people in the FBI then read it and say, wait a minute, the only way, like we're the only ones that have this. And it was quoting, you know, word for word, um, the FBI's own research on it. So the FBI realized these guys stole material from the FBI. What the hell's and going this on? Is what, this is what gives them the the clue. It's like, oh, yeah, Bullock and Gerard yes. are, yeah. So then, so they start tapping Bullock and Gerard to see what's going on and who they're working for. And they realize, hey, wow, these guys are actually working for the South Africans. And then they start, they also get wind through tapping their phone conversations of conversations with David Gurevitz and get wind of their plot to um, to whack the Simon Wiesenthal Center's researcher so that Gurevitz can get, uh, you know, get a higher paying job. And that's when they have to blow the whistle on um or you know blow open their investigation on the anti-defamation league but because they would have gone on further and kept on collecting evidence on this they were pissed i mean that's what you know part of this story is about it's like the fbi is fine with all kinds of illegal spying of course so long as so long as they're running it or you know they've approved of it or they're not going to get in trouble for it or whatever but when you go stealing their stuff then you're showing them no respect you know and uh, so, yeah, so that so they blew it open in 93. And so really, the FBI basically goes to Eaton yeah. and says, hey, you better not go to this forest retreat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, they told them that because they had to they had to protect them. And Gerard had also like they they figured, you know, even if Eaton doesn't go to this thing, we can still leak to the skinheads that Eaton had been an infiltrator and give them the home address, like my home address was on my index card. So we'll give them the home address, uh, the license plate of his yeah, car. Yeah, because Gerard had all the, the DMV yeah. stuff because he was in the police. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, and so you can, you know, put a bomb in his car, you can uh, cut his brakes, or you can, you know, get him at his home or whatever. But then, of course, yeah, the, the, the FBI blew it open. And when they blew this thing open... Like I, I got, you know, it, it was hard to wrap your head around it at the time. It was, it didn't make sense for someone like me. Now, I think if you were deeply involved in researching, well, if you were involved in the left, you might've even in 1993 been, well, actually, no, I think most of the left probably still would have been pretty shocked especially to learn the ADL was working with apartheid South Africa. I mean, apartheid South Africa was like, it, it was the most unpopular, most hated, most vile regime in the world. People did well, like, you note in the article, even like California Republicans yeah. were disgusted. But yeah, yeah. You couldn't stand by them. I mean, Reagan's people were trying to find a way to get people to not hate them so much. And mostly that was about, you know, protecting Africa from falling to the communists. It was about anti-communism. But even they had to, to condemn um, the racism. I mean, white supremacism like that, that that was done. You know, we already everybody already went through that. That was something from the black and white TV days like that didn't happen anymore. So, yeah, nobody in polite society could talk anything positively about apartheid South Africa, obviously. 
And this wasn't the case with Israel, though. You know, again, like it it took decades for people to get it into their heads that what Israel was doing is doing to Palestinians in the occupied territories and going back to the Nakba is similar, you know, to apartheid South Africa. It's very still hard for a lot of people to get that into their heads. But I think with the younger generation, with your generation, it's easier to. But for me, even it was like, why would the ADL be spying on the ACLU? That just, this is like upside down world. Why would the ADL be spying on Cranston, this big Israel supporter, Senator Cranston? Why would they be spying on, you know, me? <laughs> or, or And why would they be working with South Africa? But, um, you know, that that goes back to the big change Let's let's leaving aside Israel from 4849 and its original sins and the Nakba uh, until 1967. There's no doubt, even from the Israelis' own point of view, that Israel's kind of mission, or whatever you call it, changed after the 67 war and, and it acquired all of this, you know, it took all this territory. And from that point on, you know, its politics were much more. Um, obviously aligned with South Africa's, and then they became overtly aligned with South Africa, covertly, I should say, covertly, but they established very tight relationships with um, South Africa and saw their their causes as similar. And I that, was going to say yeah. real quick, you even had the ADL National Director, uh, Nathan Pearl Mutter, say, you know, Nelson Mandela and his African National Congress, uh, African National Congress, uh, are totalitarian, anti-humane, anti-democratic, anti-Israel, and anti-American. Uh, at <laughs> one point, the ADL was saying, oh, actually, you know, in the 80s, uh, they were saying, you know, the South African regime is is reforming, and it's the ANC and Mandela that are too extreme. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty goddamn grim like that. It's really grim. Yeah, and there's this, there's this, um, this episode uh, that do you know who Chip Burlett is or Russ Bell? I have interviewed Chip Burlett, okay, political good. research associates. He went after uh, the Larushites, and I wanted you to talk about this because apparently he had a run-in with some ADL researchers, and they put they tried to put the fear of God in him. Well, it, yeah, it wasn't just researchers; it was the man, Irvin Sewell, who was a legend uh, among people who are sort of uh, researching people on the left who researched the American right and far right and anti-Semites, uh, Erwin Sewell was legend. Now Sewell, of course, turns out he ran Bullock and Gerard and everybody else. But yeah, there's this quote from Burlett. It was in a Robbie Friedman article in the Village Voice uh, on this whole scandal from back in the 90s. But he quotes Burlett saying, um, and I think this is actually an article Burlett posted about the ADL when the story broke. Uh, but I'm just going to quote it here. So Burlick goes to meet with Irvin Sewell, Irvin Sewell, with all this research material that they have gotten on LaRouche, who, who, you know, very pretty openly anti-Semitic and kind of in a lot of ways, the closest thing to a, a real kind of died in the wall American fascist. I'm not talking Nazi and the other stuff, like kind of just classic fascist, um, you know, of anyone. And his organization was pretty powerful back then. And Burlick goes there with Russ Bellant. You know who Russ Bellant is? He's he's great. He's done, like he wrote a, a great book on all of the kind of ex-Nazi collaborators uh, that worked with the, the Republican Party in the in the 70s and 80s. 
a lot of the stuff on like Yaroslav Stetsko and the Ukrainian sort of um, Nazi collaborators uh, really comes from Russ's uh, research. Anyway, so Chip and Russ, who worked together on different projects, go to meet Sewell. And it was more like we're going to present him with this and kind of meet our our hero, like and and basically probably looking for an adult version of the pat on the head. And so they they give him this material on, on LaRouche and they hear him quoting, Sewell leans back in his chair and basically runs down a dossier on each of us, that is, on Chip Burlett. So Sewell pulls out a dossier, he is a dossier on Chip Burlett and Russ Bellon. Uh, about what our political activities are, who we work with, what organizations we belong to. Obviously, he was just trying to blow us away, and he succeeds admirably. Blow him away, that is, by showing how much he knows about them. We were just sitting there with our mouths open, feeling very uncomfortable. And then he leans forward and says, now this is the early 80s, the right wing isn't the problem. The left wing is the problem. The Soviet Union is the biggest problem in the world for Jews. It's the American left that is the biggest threat to American Jews. You're on the wrong track. You're part of the problem. Um, and so, you know, they, they, the ADL understood early that, um, and I, I think they understood it because Israel understood that the left was a problem because in Europe, it was much more, it was okay for left-wing intellectuals and it was pretty common for left-wing intellectuals outside of Germany, but even some in Germany, to be critical of, of Israel's treatment uh, and, and repression of Palestinians, um, depending on the country. And they saw, and so, you know, it was it was bigger in the in the European left. And so they figured eventually this is going to go, you know, to America, too. But I think also, in particular, they saw activism against South Africa as a threat to Israel. And I have to admit, it took me a while to get that. I, It was not obvious to me. Now, looking back, it's obviously obvious and you, you can are, see it. Do you think they had the foresight to say, oh, well, if they're going to do boycotts and sanctions and call for that with South Africa, maybe they'll try to do it to Israel later? Absolutely. And I think it scared them. It scared them seeing how big, how popular it was with young people how 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 widespread how mainstream you know so i i wasn't the only like right winger there were like there were respectable middle of the road like the the protest movement at berkeley for um boycott and divest it was boycott and divest to divest um university of california funds from any from companies doing business in south africa and it was huge. I mean, I remember one night, like in, there were, I think, seven or eight thousand students occupying Sprawl Plaza all through the night. So, yeah, like I don't think any of those people or maybe like a handful, maybe people from there were like on the fringes, you know, Spartacus Youth League and and Bob Avakian's people. And so on. there were some of those people who would have said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah you know, Israel's next. But I, I think a 95 plus percent of the people would have they would have just screwed their heads like what? Are you talking about why Israel, you know, Israel is social d democracy and Jews have been repressed. They just wouldn't have crossed their minds, but it definitely crossed these guys' minds. And they're in contact, obviously. I mean, the ADL, you know, it didn't just recently or the last 10 or 20 years start these programs of bringing U.S. police, you know, officers on these junkets to Israel. 
the ADL was doing, like when I wrote about this, they were doing this. I think they brought Roy Bullock out to Israel and he met with high ranking people. I'm sorry, not Roy Bullock. He was there, I'm sure, too. Tom Gerard, when he was at the SFPD, ADL arranged for junkets for him. Tom Carroll, who was their man in um, San Diego, they arranged junkets for him. This is back in the 80s and early 90s. So the ADL has been doing this for a long time. And, um, you know, it 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 was foresight, but it wasn't anything particularly brilliant. It was just that the rest of us were so snowed over um, and couldn't have seen the obvious link there. Um, so if people are I, I don't want people to be confused because yeah i i want them to understand how does the exact connection come uh about between bullock and then the south african regime because he's collecting this information on uh anti-apartheid activists and i think then he gets in contact with the south african regime through the adl the adl had already been spying on american anti uh, anti-apartheid campaigners bullock said that so Bullock himself told the FBI when he was being questioned that he had been infiltrating and collecting information on Bay Area anti-apartheid movements for the ADL when ADL introduced him to the South Africans to do basically double the job. And, and part of the reason they might have done that, I mean, um, you know, uh, do a solid for the South Africans. Israel and South Africa were very keen on doing solids for each other. And also to get more money uh, into, you know, to get Bullock paid more money. So it's sort of like getting paid twice for the same work. Um, and and this way it didn't have to come out of the ADL's coffers, all of that. So he'd get basically pad his salary. This was an area where the ADL, even though they were supposed to come clean on everything as part of their sort of avoiding getting, you know, having getting really sanctioned, they were supposed to come very clean. But I... Everyone sort of pointed the finger at everybody else and eventually kind of got away with it. Like, how did that meeting with the South African foreign intelligence representative come about? It looks like it came about in the ADL's offices. It looks like it was arranged by the ADL office in San Francisco. Why Why there? I mean, was it Erin Sewell in the New York office and, you know, the lead uh, investigator who had first talked to them and pointed them that way. I mean, that's what I would guess. And they, and because Roy Bullock was considered by far their best asset, their, the, the best like Lieutenant to Erwin Sewell in, in, in New York. So Sewell, I would imagine probably pointed to the San Francisco office and said, what you need to do also because San Francisco is the nest of left-wing activism, right? That's why they sent Roy Bullock there in the late seventies. The, the mission changed from the right, John Birch Society, Orange County, to the left, San Francisco, Berkeley. What Foxman will say is, oh, this was all just an anti-Semitic hoax. We didn't have anything to do with it. Well, what Foxman said is they did that on their own and they made their money on their own. And, you know, that's against our rules and we're firing them. Um, what Gerard and Bullock said was, no, the ADL had us come in for that meeting. It was Hershot who, you know, introduced us. And so everybody was kind of pointing the finger at everybody else. But Bullock was, an, you know, a top researcher, quote unquote, basically a, 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 a top employee of the Anti-Defamation League. And he took, he admits it. No, he admits it. You know, he was paid by South Africa's Foreign Intelligence Service to spy on anybody involved in anti-apartheid activism. And that aligns with you know, with Israel's interests. So basically they were spying 
I mean, the ADL kept a lot of these files too. So you you'd spy for you'd take money from the South Africans, share it with the South Africans, and share this exact same stuff with the with the Anti Defamation League, right? So so the Anti Defamation League was in favor of spying on these groups as well. That's why, you know, I had a card as an activist, uh, anti apartheid actress in the ADL's offices. That's where my card came from. Is when the police raided the ADL's offices. But it's just crazy to me that, you know, the ADL is saying, hey, Bullock wasn't that tight with us. Meanwhile, you have the memos from Seoul saying no, oh, yeah. he's our, he was our number one investigator. Oh, that's just a lie. Yeah, it's just a straight right. up lie. I mean, that's just what, you know, the lawyers are. Yeah, they just they just straight up lied. And then what they did to get out of it was they claimed that they they um, tried to use like journalism protection in order to not reveal any sources and say all oh, First Amendment. Was, First Amendment. Journalist protection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, there, there were lawsuits that were pursued. Eventually they had to pay some small sum, uh, I think to Pete McCloskey, one of his lawsuits, this is a representative who was spied on. It was so angry and he pursued it until he got some satisfaction from the ADL. But, you know, ultimately like this guy, Tom Gerard, he openly threatened and left evidence to reveal secrets about american illegal activities you know war crimes crimes against humanity whatever in central america and what happens after that he can come back to the us he has to do 6 months of community work and that's it I, after after treason i mean spying for a foreign government on americans one of the one of the people they spied on for south africa and the adl but for south africa was Ron Dellums, who was the African-American representative, Democratic representative from Oakland, Berkeley, who was the head of the, the House um, Armed Services Committee, I believe it was. And they spied on him for white South Africa. They spied on like all sorts of black people. The ADL spied for apartheid South Africa on black Americans. And and that's, I don't, I don't just, I don't know how much darker and nasty you can get than that. So so, so what, real quick, the journalist thing. So the ADL was saying to the judge, well, Bullock, he's he's a journalist. So that's he's protected by the First Amendment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's bit, insane. Yeah. And and I mean, at first they were kind of taken aback. Well, they were raided initially because they crossed the FBI again. If they hadn't stolen files from the FBI, if they hadn't stolen files from the FBI, this thing would never would have been blown open. I mean, it's pretty much that simple because they had cops in the intelligence units at you know all across the country working for them at working as double agents for both you know American cities and the and the anti-defamation league and the anti-defamation league's interest is protecting Israel and you know the ADL has gone from researching the right and defending you know, civil rights in general. I mean, they they took an active part in the board versus uh, Brown versus Board of Education desegregation. They were on the right side of that back in the fifties, and their only gig now, because they are they are a part of the national security state here, and they are you know obviously they're an arm of Israeli advocacy here as well, and they are central in promoting the idea that criticizing Israel is is anti-Semitism. And that that change kind of goes in line with as they 
foresaw uh, with the American left turning against Israel. And, you know, if you ask me, one of the things that has a lot to do with turning the American left against Israel, I mean, Israel's its own worst enemy. In so many ways, they don't give a shit, but they are, was the Iraq war and all that neoconnery. They they were so openly aligned, like Bibi, you know, fronted for the Iraq war so openly. And all the Israel supporters thought it was going to be such a great thing for Israel. It seemed like such a stupid idea. You know, it, we didn't invade Iraq and neocons didn't have power because Israel is so powerful here. Bush and his people, they thought it was a good idea for their own stupid reasons. But they were happy to have these people fronting for it, and they 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 went above and beyond the Call of Duty. And I think that you know those wars and that whole era and all the killing of Arabs and Muslims and all the Islamophobia so turned off a younger generation. You know, again, boomer for boomers, you can see this in polls. Boomers and a lot of Xers um, still have a deeply ingrained negative bigotry, I think, against Palestinians. Muslims, Arabs, but for millennials and Zoomers, it's just not there at all. It's gross to them. Like that whole thing is gross. Yeah. So, but the 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 whole the whole change of the ADL's mission from that to policing discourse uh, and activism, uh, on, you know, on be, policing activism that has to do with Israel. That's it. That's that's the whole thing now. And that's why Elon, with Elon Musk, like Musk can promote these crazy, uh, what was it, like the sort of the great replacement theory, Jews are- The, the white know, genocide theory. White genocide and I mean, he yeah. even promoted the idea that Jews were behind it. Yeah. He told that one Twitter or ex-user, whatever they're calling it these days, you have spoken a great truth here. Yeah. And it was a guy saying, oh yeah, white genocide is being perpetrated by the Jews, put, bringing in all the immigrants. And it's like, that's what Musk supported. And then uh, it's just interesting to me because uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, um, who's now the head of the ADL, I think he took over immediately after Foxman uh, retired. I mean, he's referred positively to Elon Musk as the Henry Ford of our time. And, I, and I'm like, do you realize Henry Ford wrote the book, The International yeah. the International Jew? He's an anti-Semite, dude. I, I, You know, in some weird, perverse way, I bet he knew exactly what he was doing. He was trolling. Every it's it's such a fuck you. Yeah, I said this, but hey, I'm gonna like like the Israeli ambassador wearing that star of David. Like this is my magic amulet, and if you criticize me, you're an anti-Semite. I can say whatever the fuck I want, you know. Even the most outlandish, counterintuitive thing. I I, I mean, he's not dumb. He's just gross. He's just vile. Uh, I, I feel like it's just like super trolling, Musk style. Yeah. Yeah, Musk. I, 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 you have to add, wonder though too. Like Musk, Musk is South African originally, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, as a white South African, that there's this idea among those people that white South Africans basically got weak and out of good intentions uh, created their own quote unquote genocide or destruction. And so, and, and then he's applying that. So he's without, without even saying or thinking he was an apartheid supporter. It's more like this, this fear and paranoia deeply ingrained as an apartheid South Africa supporter probably thought it was like, you know, paradise back in the day. And so, um, so he, 
I bet you that theory is thrown around in the Musk household and in his little circle a lot, like that whites and Jews are uh, well-meaning ones are bringing on their own genocide and destruction. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a classic anti-Semitic theory, but I don't, you know, he's like, well, I actually am very philo-Semitic, which freaks me out, man. Anytime, uh, you know, Gentiles are like, talk about how philo-Semitic they are. I just feel like, man, you're, you're just like one step away from, it's, on, it's like the old chestnut game. about John Hagee, right? You know, yeah. it's like this dude is, everyone says he's philo-Semitic, and yet this same dude is like, actually, Hitler did a great thing yeah. because he brought about the creation of Israel with what he did. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. the, the philo-Semites in this country are often like deeply anti-Semitic oh, in yeah. weird ways. It's very yeah. freaky. They scare the shit out of me. You know, did you see the Elon Musk um, interaction with uh, Israel's president, Isaac Herzog? I thought that was very telling because it's it's one of the clearest examples of his supremacist attitudes where he said, you know, what we need to do with these Gazans, we need to set up like education systems. And I put the money into it so that we can teach these murderers not to be murderers. Jesus. And I, I'm thinking to myself, you just think they're animals, dude. Yeah. Like, absolutely. So know, he's I mean, got that old deeply supremacist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's got that old thinking about them. And, you know, it's kind of scary. So, a lot of people in the American elites are still of that mindset. You you can just you can see it like in the media, um, sort of the top layer of media world. And it's a it's generational because you are seeing some pushback from, I think, younger ones. But it's very generational. People at sort of the upper layers in the foreign policy establishment in the kind of a cell quarter media establishment. They really love the Israelis and the counterparts that they meet with in Israel. And. I think well the time I mean hell, I've I've I mean I've got some family there and I really really like my family and my and the friends of the family that I met there I like them a lot but they were a different type they were very this was you know my first trip out there in 1991 and they disabused me of my of my Zionism helped disabuse me of it not by being BDS and anti Israel just sort of like just kind of talking about how shitty it all was and and uh how unglorious you know it it all was but i think at the at the level of like the jake tappers and the anthony blinkens and the people in the military and stuff they meet with israeli counterparts who who are what a lot of these guys want to be they they say things that are politically incorrect but supposedly very hard boiled hard-nosed truths, you know, and and they have this view that everybody else is deeply cynical. Hamas doesn't care about how many people they kill. You know, Hamas doesn't care about this. Like, everything is a cynical game. And I think, like, elite Ivy League, uh, prep school, Americans in power in the East Coast think of themselves, like, don't like to think, they think of themselves like, I'm not one of the naive ones. I get it. I get the angles. And the Israelis talking to them about the way the world works or the way the Middle East works makes them feel like they're tough. They get it. They they get the angles, you know, and, and it's not, the Israelis are fucking clueless. You can see like they're, they, they're just, they're, they're just such incompetent degenerates now, the, the, the people running things, absolutely incompetent degenerates, but they have a huge fan base in, uh, in DC and, and, uh, you know, New York. And the last thing I wanted to mention was, uh, g- getting back to this piece you wrote on the ADL mm-hmm. back in 2014, there's, there was an interesting quote that you, you have quote from Bullock. He says, I'm one of a kind. 
to police investigators. And then he refers to uh, the people that he gained trust with and infiltrated. He said, they, as in these Arab groups, they live in a dark, restricted world of their own fervent imaginations. You say you agree and they fall all over. You don't you don't have to say much. But I found his fervent imaginations uh, comment very interesting because, you know, I I think there is like times where I have met anti-Zionists or people that are critical of Israel who I do think move over into anti-Semitism. I think that's overplayed. But I have talked to pro-Israel people that have the most detailed conspiracy theories mm-hmm. about anything Palestinian, yeah. from Netanyahu saying that the Grand Mufti <laughs> was actually the puppet master yeah. of Hitler, to, you know, for all the all we talk about the Israel lobby, I know some pro-Israel people that think the Arabist lobby, as they call it, controls all aspects oh, yeah. of uh, American foreign policy. I mean, they went after um, Alexander Coburn for that back in the day. So they said, right. oh, he's an agent of the Arab lobby. Uh, what do you make of the sort of um, paranoia of the pro-Israel right wing? Because I think people don't realize they're even more, they're like a mirror image of the most anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists out there. I mean, like I said, I, I think they're their own worst enemies. That they're, It's kind of like Lloyd Austin's quote. It's a pretty good quote. It's a, it's a kind of repurpose what Lloyd Austin said. It's, it's like a, a short-term win for a long-term loss. Um, and I think that's what they're doing because they are paranoid, extremely aggressive. They think everything is maximum war, that the other side has nothing to say. It's the other side is full of hate. And so we must be full of hate times 10 towards them and destroy them completely. And um, it's a it's a deeply ingrained ideology. And they cannot there's they, they cannot like think outside of that. And it's it might have worked for a while, but it's breaking apart. And um, I, like I said, I think they're creating so many enemies. I mean, Vincent Bevins had a book speaking event. You know, he's not even right about Israel. In fact, he just had a tweet reporting on something somebody said uh, involving the conflict. And then all of a sudden his appearance in Germany was can't like somebody reported him. And then his his book appearance in Germany was was canceled and he can't appear anywhere. Like uh, that's just a tiny, tiny example because we're really talking about firings and cancellations and so on. Um, so if I were to sum it up, I just think they're they are their own worst enemy. I probably worked pretty well for a while when you could completely scare. Basically, what they did was they made it so that most people on the liberal left sort of thought, you know, Israel. I can't say I really like them. You know, I, I think it started probably maybe more with Obama, the, I mean, the Iraq war and then Obama, because they were so openly anti-Obama and, and became so partisan and pro, you know, Trump. But like, it's not really worth it because if you, if you get into public anything against Israel, you know, your life could be ruined. And, and that kept a lot of people, I think, from deciding to take that step from a Zionism or something, or no longer enamored with Zionism to being anti-Zionist. But when you watch them make so many enemies from the people that that they don't need enemies from, you know, in America and in the West, and they can't help themselves because that strategy worked shutting people up completely for decades. It doesn't work anymore. So I, I just think they're sowing the seeds of, of if not their destruction, then I, I can definitely foresee, and I 
I wouldn't have thought this before, a time in the not too distant future where the U.S. starts to really pull away from Israel and say, you know, these guys are doing things we told them not to, wiping their, you know, wiping their hands of it and lowering aid to cutting off aid to criticizing Israel to, you know, the relationship can change. And frankly, then so can, you know, APAC's power and so on. Like these things can change. And so, yeah, they're their own worst enemies. Just to put a bow on the ADL piece, um, and I know this is speculative, but why do you think eventually the DA said, we don't really want to deal with this? And and why do you think the FBI investigation, um, I don't want to say it came up short, but like the, you know, the, the ADL kind of uh, scooted away from it and said, hey, this wasn't the ADL, it was just Bullock and Gerard, they were renegade. Why do you think that happened the way it did? Because I think it's, I think the ADL, I think it wasn't ADL spiring. I don't think it was just Bullock. But why do you think things panned out the way they did? I think because the ADL is ultimately very, it, it is an arm of the U.S. national security state, ultimately. It, it, it is. Really, it is a propaganda um, and uh, like a sort of a propaganda and um law enforcement, private, you know, uh, arm of law enforcement and imperial propaganda. I, I, I mean, I'm absolutely sure of that. And so the goal was not to destroy them so long as they cooperated, you know, so long as they showed proper, which I assume they did with their lawyers, like, okay, we screwed up, we crossed the line. Roy Bullock has now been officially, you know, fired and officially he was actually never with us. And here's what we're not going to do again. And here's what we will do. But and, and then, of course, Tom Gerard, you know, blackmailing them like that was pretty serious secrets about the CIA that he threatened to expose. So it was like it would have been a, a big headache. And and frankly, what are you going to do? Destroy the uh, you know, I think most Jews and most people on the left would have been shocked if they if it, if the organization was like brought to trial and, and like dismantled, it would have been. It would have scared them back then. Yeah, especially. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean I mean, to be fair, I mean, there have been there are even to this day, I think there's staffers at the ADL who do good work on exposing the right wing. It's just increasingly I think we're seeing it's a pro-Israel advocacy group more than all of that. Yeah. I, I just love how they had called the Azov battalion in Ukraine, you know, uh, uh I mean they'd written up something about how they're aligned with or you know symbols that are hate group symbols and neo-nazi and then on the day of the invasion they said oh we now officially decree that they're no longer a hate group or aligned with neo-nazis like they just that's what they do though you know so i because i remember my first dealing after the the index card thing in the 90s uh in 1999 during the kosovo war they played an important role because this was after schindler's list came out holocaust you know, fighting Nazis was was very big in kind of liberal culture. And the Serbs were the new Nazis. And when uh, the Clinton people started bombing Serbia, and it didn't go well for a while, and then you start seeing, you know, a lot of, like, basically, it wasn't going well. The Serbs didn't cave as they were supposed to. And there were a lot of refugees. And so the uh, Clinton administration people, in order to whip up um, support, started saying, comparing it to the Holocaust. They were saying, you know, we have reports that hundreds of thousands have been killed, hundreds of thousands raped, and uh, we have not seen this since the Holocaust. And they kept repeating Holocaust. 
So I called up the ADL and I was like, you know, there, there are atrocities going on, but like, is this, do you, cause I think somebody from the ADL had, um, had backed them up. I think it was what it was in like a New York times article. And I said, how can you compare this to the Holocaust? Like that, that's, I mean, there are atrocities, but the Holocaust, what's special about it is all that effort put into death camps, putting them in death camps and gassing or shooting them in giant pits. Like, and that's not, that's the Holocaust. And she was like, well, what we said was the images are reminiscent of the Holocaust, of the refugees. And I was like, but there's refugees in war after war after war. So are all of those reminiscent of the Holocaust or just this one? And finally, she just got annoyed, um, the spokesperson, with me kind of, kept, I kept calling out like the double standards. She said, look, this administration, the Clinton administration, does a lot of good things for Israel and for Jews, and we're standing by them. And that's why we said that. Okay? Anything else? And I was like, okay. So they, they you know, when called upon, they serve the interest. And it's very important to get, now I think less so now because the ADL has so discredited themselves, but man, back then to get the ADL signing on to this is like the Holocaust when the bombing campaign's not going well. That was very important. Very important. Well, hey, uh, Mark Ames, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, my listeners, they can just go to um, Patreon Radio Warnered, right? And then yes. is there anything Patreon else? Uh, com forward slash Radio Warnered. Subscribe. Enjoy. Read it. Know it. Live it. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mark Ames and that you'll check out Radio Warnerd on Patreon. Also, with that in mind, uh, you should check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I need your support now more than ever. Other than my one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window, it is you, dear listener, that keep this show going. They keep it afloat. I'm staring the ship, but I need your help. So, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say "Don't do it," just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.